This episode of the Out of Bounds Podcast is sponsored by Fisher Skis, and you can visit them at www.fishersports.com. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Adam. This is the Out of Bounds Podcast, and today we have Payson McKelvin on the show. Payson is a professional gravel racer, a professional cyclist in general. I mean, he's very much a jack of all trades. We talk about his new project, Crossing Tasmania, where he crosses Tasmania. Um, <laughs> in about 30 hours uh, nonstop, which is insane. It talks about that mindset going into it, kind of trying to drop the racer boy mindset and move forward to like having the best experience possible while doing this. We also talk about basketball, which I wasn't expecting. And we talk about Lance Armstrong. Um, There's a whole bunch of stuff in this one. These are the episodes that get me really fired up and I'm glad I got another one uh, in the bag here that I'm, that I'm really excited about. So, before we jump into the episode with Payson, a couple quick things. One, thank you to our sponsor, Rumple. Rumple has a bunch of great deals on puffy blankets. So if you're looking for something to keep you warm this fall, yes, fall, I can't believe it's here already. Um, Rumple's the place to get one. It's packable. They make one called the Nano and they make one that's just the original puffy blanket. It just depends on what you're using it for. I've been throwing the Nano in my like frame bag, uh, just in case I decide to go anywhere where I need a blanket, right? Like sitting on a beach, sitting by the water, just have a little picnic, made a little charcuterie. Uh, last time I was out, uh, it's it's an awesome thing to be able to carry with you. Great for bike packing, great for quick trips in the mountains, or if you're just going to do an overnight. Um, so grab a Nano or a Puffy blanket today at Rumble.com. All that stuff is on sale at this point. So be sure to take advantage of it and uh, get ready for fall. Also, Gear Guide drops in October. We are just about wrapping up with it here. We have some awesome articles from Emily Sullivan, Delilah Cup, and honestly, so many other people, as well as art from Shane McFalls. There's a bunch of stuff in here that you're only going to see through the Gear Guide. Okay, Only available in the Gear Guide, so go ahead and get yourself one as soon as they are available which will be very soon. We'll open them up for pre-order towards the end of September, and they will ship sometime in October. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode with my friend and yours, Payson McElvin. Payson, tell people who you are, tell people a little bit about yourself, and then let's take it from there. Just uh, jumping into the deep end. Uh, Let's see. I'm a professional off-road bike racer. I live in Durango, Colorado. Um, I'm from Austin, Texas originally. Well, little little town outside of Austin. Used to be little. Um, been here in Durango for 12 years, 13 years. Uh, like you, I've had podcasts for about five years. Um, Sick. Which is a lot of work, but also something I love very much. Um, I love doing creative projects. It's sort of, uh, it's probably the thing that helps my career, my, my racing career stay sustainable emotionally and mentally. Mm. Um, and it's just something that I, I kind of have to do. It's like a itch I have to scratch. So I do a lot of film projects and obviously the podcast falls into that category as well. Mm-hmm. Um, big NBA basketball fan. Um, no shit. What's your team? Uh, the sp- well, the Spurs. It's been a bit of a tough last few years, but things are looking up. 
but I'm mostly. How do we feel about Wemby? Uh, TBD. Uh, the- theoretically good. Um, but I'm I'm mostly just a fan of the league, and I I I'm a massive junkie just for the whole ecosystem of it, like all the, you know, uh, contracts and transfers and the business side of things and team acquisitions, and obviously, the the playing of the game as well. But I probably spend as much time listening to basketball podcasts as I do bike related stuff. <laughs> that's awesome i would have never never guessed did you play in high school yeah a bit um i had a a recurring knee injury actually early in high school that kind of nudged me towards the bike um it was a good way to kind of rehab the injury and i ended up that's kind of what eventually set the hook for me on bike riding but basketball and track and field were kind of my first things awesome Love that. Well, I hope it's a good season for the Spurs. I'm I'm a little suspect on uh, on Wemby, but we'll see what happens. I guess the summer league thing was like a little off putting, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I, if anything, I'm mostly worried about his uh, structural integrity. <laughs> but, uh, we'll, uh, <laughs> you mean because he's seven six and like 180 pounds? Yeah, like. something like that. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But I do have. Uh, I also have a, a little. Giannis bobblehead here that I have in my office oh, that I sick. picked up in Sydney a few months ago. So, yeah, anyway. awesome. <laughs> I love that. Um, how this is like one of my least favorite questions, but I feel like it's an obligation to ask. Like, how how did you get into bike racing? How did that how did that come about? Because I think getting into cycling as a profession is is always a weird path that people end up taking Mm -hmm. to kind of make it to that final destination. So I'm, I'm wondering where that started for you and, and why you decided to take it so seriously. Mm. Well, um, I would say two, two things were most important early on. One was that it's something that my family did together, especially my dad and I Mm -hmm. and a a neighbor. Um, but the other thing is when I was growing up, uh, Lance Armstrong was winning all those tours and he, uh, you know, was living in Austin, um, actually had a ranch just 10 or 15 minutes from where I grew up. And so that was always front of mind. You know, we'd always record the, the stages on VHS and I'd go back and watch them over and over and over and then go out <laughs> on our little country road and like impersonate Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin's commentary as I <laughs> sprinted up the little 22nd country rollers um so that it it stayed like a childhood interest and dream for that reason um Mm -hmm. obviously i had no idea what bike racing or professional racing would mean um but i stayed pretty i don't know diverse in my childhood interest to like i said playing basketball all that sort of thing um it was that knee injury that kind of coaxed me towards uh racing and and bike racing um and i'm not really sure why but with team sports i never totally applied myself like i had the potential to you know i wasn't the kid that was going to like the the summer bonus practices shoot arounds you know going to whatever like three-point shooting camp that a lot of the a lot of my uh peers were doing but for some reason with the bike when i got on did my first race got my ass kicked Instead of being like, ah, I'm not that into it, the response was, I really want to try hard at this and get better. Um, so yeah, to this day, I have no idea why, but I just turned into this like ultra-focused 15, 16-year-old kid that just 
you know, would leave school at 3 p.m. every day and go ride in 105 degree Texas heat by myself, <laughs> like dreaming of being a pro bike racer, just doing intervals, like absolutely slaughtering myself uh, day after day. And I have no idea why. Like I just had this dream of being a pro pro cyclist. And at the time, I wasn't even sure whether that meant road or mountain bike. Um, mm-hmm. My dad had more of a mountain bike background, so we ended up going to more mountain bike races. But I did do a couple road races. Um and I eventually just kind of got hooked on the mountain bike scene and some some riders that were really successful, especially U.S. riders that I ended up looking up to and, you know, just uh, admired. And, mm. yeah, just ended up going down that path. And when I look back, it was – obviously, there are lots of twists and turns, but it was kind of a simple – uh, it would like my, my interest was unwavering, I guess, which I think is pretty unusual for, for a teenager. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think it's interesting when people come from like playing team sports their whole life and then they go and they do something like bike racing where it's like very personal. Like it's like, it's the ego is involved. I think a lot more mm-hmm. in bike racing mm-hmm. because it's like, Oh, I got, I got my ass kicked. It's not like yeah. the team didn't play good. It's very like it's on you. Like I felt the same way. Like I was playing high school and college basketball and racing bikes. And every time I'd lose a basketball game, it'd be like, whatever. But every time I would lose a bike race or do terribly in a bike race or DNF, I'd like, I'd fucking hate my life. I'd be so mad. And it's like all that I could think about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because definitely early on, I think that was my attitude and I would get really frustrated in basketball games. If, you know, I made it, it was a tight game, made a good play in the fourth quarter or whatever. And then a teammate would, would miss a shot or we'd the team would miss a couple mm-hmm. of shots and be like, dang, you know what? I think I did everything I could do. And still there's this disappointment. So I don't know if that sort of coast me towards this more self-reliance sport or what, but once I went to college, I did some collegiate cycling and uh, there's some different events in collegiate cycling that are sore, sort of more almost like track and field esque, where you have like team relays and it's much more of a team sport, not quite, like world tour road cycling is a team sport, but close because <clears throat> it's mm. points based. And uh, I think to this day, some of my, my best racing memories are in the team relay and stuff. And just the satisfaction of, mm. I, I remember because for a few years we were trying to win this team relay mountain bike team relay. And we were always like second, third, whatever. And then senior year we finally won. And it was this, it was a, it was a more, it was a higher high than, than an individual win. Um, mm. and so getting just a little dose of, of what it can feel like to, to win as a team, um, was, was pretty special. So I feel lucky to have felt a little bit of both, but, um, I hear what you're saying too. Yeah, for sure. Um, let me ask you a little bit about Lance since you brought him up. Mm. How, how do we feel in 2023 about Lance, what he's accomplished? Because it's obviously a super divisive mm. conversation in cycling, like, there's the argument for like, yeah, our, our cheater is better than your cheater. Like the Bill Burr <laughs> quote that like, that's, there's that, there's that argument. And then there's people who are like, yeah, he was at the forefront of like causing the sport to go where it went for a while, you know? Uh-huh. So I'm wondering where your head's at with that, because I think I'm, I'm like you in the sense of like when I was a kid watching Lance was the shit, like I yeah. really enjoyed it. But now I'm like, I feel, I almost feel a little guilty sometimes for mm-hmm. enjoying it. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering where you are at with that. Yeah, I think it's really, really complicated. And it's interesting to me that 
as a whole, I actually had a conversation with um, a buddy of mine recently about this who who's a journalist, and we were kind of talking about how it's interesting that the the sport still doesn't seem ready to really grapple with it yeah. now, like a, over a decade on, which I think is really interesting. Because uh, if you look at other uh, other examples, whether it's like I don't know Barry Bonds or yeah, uh, name another example, whatever. Like the the willingness to move move on, have hard conversations, and like figure out where you actually stand um, <clears throat> happened a lot more quickly. And with Lance, it's, it almost reminds me of like the political climate in a way where it's so divided. Yeah. Either you're like super 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 pissed even if it's mostly like a a a recreational sort of anger (laughs) like you just enjoy being really angry and like (laughs) talking a bunch of shit or you're sort of like yeah i mean he he was one of the best of all time anyway where i it's it's also tough for me because i actually have a personal relationship with him or or did for a while and yeah he when i was like i mentioned earlier he had a ranch near where i grew up and uh I didn't really have much in the way of trails to ride on near my house growing up. It was like a 20 plus minute drive at minimum to get to trail. And somewhere along the, the way it made it through the grapevine to him that there was this kid that, you know, 15 year old kid that had ambitions. And back in the day he'd had Nike put, I think it was like 18 miles of trail on, on his ranch. And so mm-hmm. um, he just ended up getting me the gate codes to his ranch because it was close to our house. So after school I would go, ride on his private ranch on his private single track uh, now and then I'm it wasn't like a, a weekly thing but you know it probably happened a good six or eight times and so for that reason um you know he, he gave me like this little nudge of momentum um and then there were some other examples just like you know like I said before uh impersonating Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin's commentary in my head when I was 13 or 14 years old as he, as he was dropping, you know, Jan Ulrich to win his fourth or fifth tour or whatever. So for me, like, I can't deny those things at the yeah. same time. I can't deny that he did a significant amount of, a significant amount of damage to the sport in regards to the business side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, like for, for a long time, it's been harder for teams to, especially us based teams to get funding. Um, but at the same time, I think he his downfall um, was big in changing the culture of cycling, and ultimately that's what had to happen. Is the the riders had to decide like we we're going to do this differently moving forward. And this newest generation, mm. I'm talking mostly World Tour now, but it kind of bleeds over into what I'm doing too. Um, all the friends I have on the World Tour, like there's just a very different ethic, and they're almost like there for different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was a long answer, but like I said, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's a complicated relationship for everyone. And I think even on the business side, it gets complicated because he brought so many eyes to the sport during that time, like when he was competing and afterwards when he was like, yeah, I, I lied and I cheated and that's, that is what it is. You know, I think so many people became aware of cycling through yeah, him and totally. like aware that the sport was what it is just because he was around so it's like for better or worse lance helped the sport a lot yeah well and what's tough too is i mean to an extent he also turned cycling into a bit of a punchline for a while 
you know, in the, sure. in the eyes of yeah. the rest of the sporting world. And I still have conversations with friends sometimes where they're like, you know, those guys, there's no way that those guys are actually clean or like, have you ever thought about doing this? Or like, is it really possible that you ride hundred miles, however fast, you know? Yeah. Clean? And because there is this just like, he almost like branded it in this really negative light for a period for of sure. time. And that's, that's tough, really tough <clears throat> in regards to how the sport dealt with him. I think, uh, it's a little ridiculous that he got this basically like lifetime ban and all of his results, you know, with a line through him based on what everyone else was doing during that era. But at the same mm-hmm. time, he did himself no favors, like the way he dealt with the media, yeah. his attitude, all that yeah. sort of thing. A lot of it was uh, self-inflicted. So anyway. Yeah, kind of yeah, mixed bag for sure. Yep. Um, let me ask you about racing. How how do we feel right now about not just this season, but racing in general? Are we enjoying it still? Is it a thing that still is motivating? Like I know we talked a little bit about before, like how you're feeling kind of in the early stages of this season, but I'm more curious about how, I don't know, just the race scene in general, especially like gravel events Mm -hmm. and mountain bike events. Like what do we, what do we feel like, where is this heading for you and for the sport in general? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so in general, the sport is in, in an incredibly exciting place here in the States. Uh, we sort of have our own thing going on for the first time in a while. Um, and so for those that don't know, like I, I focus on the off-road side of things. So mountain biking and gravel racing. Um, and mountain biking obviously was invented in the States and got big in the States. There was a big heyday in the 90s. Europe really adopted it as a sport that they love and now it's become mostly a European based thing at the highest level. There's a world cup series. It's in the Olympics world champs, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's become a very specific like discipline. Um, and that sort of left the U S with less of a, like the only reason that like U S XCO really existed at a professional level was to like feed the world cup thing and like hopefully send a couple of our riders to the Olympics but the, mm-hmm. the U.S. scene itself, like the Pro XCT series, as it's called, wasn't like a super healthy or hasn't been a super healthy ecosystem for a while. So um, if you wanted to do this full time, you basically had to be one of the top, I don't know, two to five in the country doing the World Cup, Olympic hopeful, all that sort of thing. And then everyone else was just sort of like ski bum style, probably sleeping in, in their van a lot of the time, scraping by on on uh not much cash annually. Um, yeah. But meanwhile, kind of simmering in the background, there's been these really big iconic events like the Leadville 100, um, Epic Ride Series, and gradually those like spawned these other mass participation events. And I think that's where like the magic is really happening in the U.S. right now is finally the U.S. scene realized that bike racing in the United States is never going to be a spectator sport. It's a participation mm-hmm. sport. So it's almost like if you have Olympic track and field and then you have ultra running, mountain running, you know, like UTMB, Western States, hard rock, whatever it is like, that's our bike version of that is exploding right now with unbound Leadville, whatever name them. There's more events than you can shake a mm-hmm. stick at right now. And they're all selling out. Um, and so it's really exciting. And, and I was <clears throat> really well positioned to kind of take advantage of that. Cause I sort of had, one foot out the door on the world cup thing. I just wasn't really enjoying it. It wasn't really clicking for me. Um, 
and I won a couple cross uh, uh, marathon national championships like right before the gravel scene was really blowing up and that like from a sponsor and fan standpoint sort of like positioned me as a long distance guy and so at the time mm-hmm. I didn't really necessarily have a plan to do it but I ended up doing more long distance stuff and um, when you win a national title you get to wear the the stars and stripes jersey for the year and it's a pretty cool, unique experience, and so I wanted to go do the biggest marathon race that happens in the States every year, which is the Leadville 100, and I did it, and I was like, man, how have I not done this before? There's thousands mm. of people on the start line. It gets way more media coverage than like any cross-country race in the States, um, and mm. I was just in hook, line, and sinker, and so I, I sort of like, uh, I definitely wasn't the first adopter as a pro coming to gravel. Like I'd give that to more Ted King or couple of the other Mm -hmm. riders but i was on the earlier side um and it's been amazing it's it's so fun i'm i'm uh much more suited to it than xco um and i just feel super lucky to be having the meat of my career right now as this new thing is really blowing up it's good great timing for for me i feel lucky most days that i get on the bike (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome um how do you feel about gravel racing in general, kind of the state of gravel racing? I think there's there's a lot of different schools of thought when it comes to talking about where gravel is right now. Mm. There's a lot of people who take it like very recreationally and there's a lot of people like yourself who are looking at it like it's a race, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's those things intermingle with gravel so much because like anybody could go, if you get into Unbound, you can go ride Unbound with you, right? Mm-hmm. Be at the same start gate and it's, there's not a lot of sports where that's an opportunity. Like you don't put on a Jersey and go play with LeBron James. Like that's not a, that's not a thing that happens. Mm -hmm. So how, how has that been in the first few years that like gravel is exploding, right? Everybody wants to be involved. And I, I just wonder what that feels like from your perspective, looking at it, like looking at the whole thing. Yeah, I think so. It's, it's a bit unusual as far as professional, <clears throat> excuse me, professional sports opportunities go because there's very little structure. You know, it's not, there is no league yeah. like in the world tour. It's basically a league. It's basically like an, like an NBA or NFL or whatever. This is this weird, like just, uh, you know, untapped. Everyone's just figuring out what it is. And I think yeah. there, there's sometimes some back and forth about like, you know, you always hear the spirit of gravel thrown out as this punchline, um, which I understand because anytime something grows that quickly, there's going to be growing pains. But I mm-hmm. think what most people are starting to realize, uh, which is really good, is that it's you really can make it whatever you want and you can get out of it whatever you want. And that don't that don't even goes for uh, you know someone in my position on a event to, to event basis. Like I think of someone like Ian Boswell, for example, who came from the world tour, raced the tour to France, decided he was, he was done with that scene. Wasn't quite done racing. Um, transitioned in the gravel thing, one unbound, but then realized, man, this is actually getting super professionalized really quickly. Uh, I I'm feeling the exact same pressure that I did in the world tour. I'm not sure I'm on board with this. And so he now <clears throat> basically picks two to three big events per year that he wants to peak for and take really seriously. And then the rest of the time, he's just, an ambassador that people like to hang out with. Um, and yeah. so for example, at uh, steamboat gravel, a couple weekends ago, he just gets on an e-bike starts in the very back, 
like <laughs> takes some shooters with him in his jersey pockets and just cruises around and fix people's flats and like does it in 11 hours instead of six. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I think as long as the, the discipline, the sport can kind of hang on to that and realize that as and I'm talking mostly from a pro rider standpoint, like we have this opportunity because of the thousands and thousands of non pros that are doing the events. Mm-hmm. Like it, as long as we continue to embrace like the entire ecosystem and that it's a participation sport and that it is truly still grassroots, um, at least in spirit, <clears throat> I think it'll continue to do well. Um, yeah. In your mind, is there any benefit to kind of having separate classes for these gravel events? Like you have like the professional class that you actually have to qualify for mm-hmm. and then like a more recreational open style class? Because I think that's a that's always a thing that I think about, I guess, where you know, some people are there to win and some people are just there to ride. And those things intermingling is a little weird sometimes mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because it's, um, I see both sides. So for example, I remember at Unbound year before last, uh, everyone started together all, I don't know how many are on the start line for the 200, few thousand. And it's, it's quite flat at the beginning. And so inevitably you get some folks trying to be at the front of the race for their moment of, Hey, I'm up here with the pros who don't necessarily have the experience of riding in a Peloton at 25 to 35 miles an hour. And it's narrow roads and, you know, it's pinching double track <clears throat> crossing yeah. bridges, big pockets of loose gravel. And it was so freaking dangerous. I mean, it was just like, it was like there were snipers set up along the road and just without warning, all of a sudden <laughs> there'd just be a bike like over your head. And <laughs> It was, dude, it was out of control. It was the scariest (laughs) first hour of a bike race I've ever had in my life. Um, And, you know, I think fortunately Lifetime was willing to see that and make a little bit of a compromise in regards to the purity of the whole thing and give the pros their own start this year. And I think that Mm -hmm. was, that was awesome. I think some of the other events that are tough and selective right off the start with climbs or whatever else it's fine for it to still be a mass start because it, it gets dispersed more quickly. Um, yeah. So I think it's more of a event by event basis. Um, there was something else I wanted to say about that, but I can't remember what it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it'll continue to have, continue to have some little growing pains here and there. Uh, anytime, like there's something that's super grassroots and not, professionalized and then all of a sudden there's just this huge influx of money like it's going to be there's going to be this awkward awkward growth period oh i remember what i was going to say one thing that is really tricky is uh there's different distances for a lot of these races so for example yeah right at unbound this year there were a bunch of 50 miler and 100 miler finishers in the finish shoot as you had this seven person sprint for the 200 win and you have, I mean, it's insane. And I think of guys, so there's there's one guy who I'm a big fan of who I get to race with these na- these days named Petr Vakoc. He's from the Czech Republic and raced for Quick Step, won a Belgian Classic. And he's only, he did the tour in 21. So he's only like 18 months removed from being in the Tour de France Peloton. And he's in the, he finished second at Unbound like in a really tight finish with Keegan dodging these 50 and hundred milers. And I'm just, 
I'm trying to put myself in his shoes. Like, what must he be thinking? Like, he's got a legitimate, <laughs> like, second career going on here. And he's, like, dodging people who are maybe doing their first bike race ever. Um, yeah. And on the one hand, it's like, that's not good. Let's adjust some things. Let's have two finish shoots, whatever. But at the same point, a lot of what's making gravel so popular right now is that it is kind of risky and it is a little bit insane. It is a little Mm -hmm. by the seat of your pants and just kind of the wild West to an extent. And so I think depending on who you ask, there's different opinions there. Like Lachlan Morton, for example, I remember in the press conference after that race said something along the lines of, you know, if you, if you don't want to finish like this, go back and do UCI races. Um, Right. (laughs) Which is one perspective. And Lachlan is very like, you know, one of the more free spirited racers. And then of course, someone coming from the world tour a year ago is going to be like, what the fuck is this? So, um, yeah, it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I I think the start is the thing that sketches me out the most. Mm -hmm. Like I remember I did Vermont overland last year. Right. And the start is kind of open for a minute, like maybe a mile of road. And then you get into the woods and it immediately like bottlenecks Mm -hmm. and you just like saw a complete carnage of everybody. (laughs) Like, like you said, people like, first time race, first time on like a class four road, first time riding in muddy conditions, like all of those people mixed in with people who are like trying to be competitive in this thing. And just for like a solid 15 minutes, you just see, you know, 1500 people just get completely mashed together. There, It was so bizarre. People were stopped for so long that like, there's a dude taking a piss on the side, like literally like two feet away from me. And I'm just like, <laughs> what is happening right yeah, now? Yeah, like, yeah. this is such a bizarre thing to be going on. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm just there to ride and have fun. But like, yeah. if you were taking this seriously, I imagine that it's like, okay, like, give me like a 10 minute head start and let me just get clear of this. If like, this is competitive, but at the same time, like to Lachlan's point, it's part of it, mm-hmm. right? It's fun. It's chaotic. That's part of what makes gravel gravel. The thing is, too, like it is dangerous. I think a lot of people maybe aren't they don't quite realize it yet or there's a little bit of like a they don't want to admit it type thing. But to me, it is this weird combination of like the dangerous aspects of mountain biking mixed with the dangerous aspects of road racing. Um, Yeah. And in the last 12, 14 months, I've had two really bad crashes and significant injuries just due to racing incidences like late late in races when we're just a group of you know six to ten because you're absolutely hauling ass you're staying as close as you can together to get as good a draft as you can and then all of a sudden they'll just be like a foot deep rut and like you can't see it at all and then all of a sudden you're just on the ground and yeah breaking bones or getting a concussion or whatever it is so it is such a new sport that whether it's the starts whether it's the finishes whether it's the how everyone thinks about the ecosystem as a whole, how how dangerous it is, equipment setup, like all of these things are being figured out really, really, trying to be figured out really, really fast because everything is developing so fast and it's growing so fast. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see how, and I'm sure a lot of people are, how it shakes out over the next few years because I think there there is getting to a point where it should be a little more polished but I don't think anyone wants to see it be like full UCI, right. super aggressively polished. So it's like, where is that line that is comfortable for everybody without losing the spirit of gravel? You know, it's for just, sure. it's a tough thing to figure out. And I don't, all these race organizers that are doing a great job, it's just got to be a nightmare for them. Like yeah. the stress on those people, the day of the event must be 
immense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I agree. It's uh, we'll see what happens. Um, I want to ask you about a recent project that you did, uh, crossing Tasmania. Tell me first what the concept was, what the, what the idea was behind this thing and why you set out to do it. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a long story, but I'll try to make it quick. So basically, and at the very beginning of 2020, I started dating uh, my now fiance and she comes from more of a, an adventure biking background. And so we gradually, you know, she's sort of like introduced me to this style of riding a bit more because uh, there was no racing happening during 2020. And I really fell in love with it and became uh just kind of a rabid fan of like ultra distance and bike backing and was following it more and <clears throat> took a stab at the Colorado trail FKT with absolutely zero experience. Um, absolutely. It destroyed me like hardest thing I've ever done by far uh, learned a lot, but it left me with this like <clears throat> whole other, like uh, just exciting, like wilderness of possibilities. Um, and so ever since then, even as racing picked back up, I've kind of like dipped a toe into different ultra distance or multi-day challenges just because it's a completely different experience than the racing I do. Um, and I think probably most people, if they try it, end up getting hooked on it to some degree because I feel like there's something very human about ultra distance stuff. And when I say ultra, I mean like, you know, 12, 24 hours or, or multi-day um, mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but it just seems like there's something human about endurance, um, of, of that magnitude. So in 21 fall of 21, um, the photographer, Chris Burkhardt and, uh, Lyle Wilcox, the bike packer, were doing, a, an expedition in Iceland, um, kind of plotting out this new eight day, uh, bike touring route. And, uh, Nicole and I, got an invite to go do that with him. And I was kind of on the fence cause it was in the middle of my race season, but Chris basically dangled this, like he knows me pretty well at this point, And he, <laughs> he knows that like, if, if there's something slightly competitive that he dangles in front of me, like maybe I'll commit to joining him for yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he was like, Hey, FYI, I think it's possible to ride coast to coast across Iceland in a single push, but no one's ever done it. And there's all this cool history of overland travel um, you know, maybe after our, our, our bike tour, like you could go give it a rip and see if it, if it's possible. Uh, so anyway, I did that and it was <clears throat> by far the coolest bike thing I'd ever done. Um, just like immersing yourself in an Island and going coast to coast under your own power, self-supported, just clip in and go, um, was mm. amazing. Um, and once we got back from that trip, uh, I immediately started putting down a list of other places I was interested in doing this. Uh, and Tasmania was was up there as uh, one of the places I was most curious about. And it went a little bit full circle, because, and this comes through in the film, but I did uh, Exio Worlds in Australia in 2016, I think. And had a, a it, was, it was definitely a turning point for me because I flew in and I think I was there for five days and I didn't really see Australia. I didn't get to know what Australia yeah. was about. I just practiced this little like four or five kilometer world cup track, saw the inside of my hotel. That was about it. Um, and it felt like yeah. such a waste of a 30 plus hour flight and 
you know, to that point, a lifetime's worth of work, you know. Um, and so I always wanted to go back and, and Tasmania just seemed like this incredibly um, mysterious, you know, exotic place that you sort of hear things about. But the more research I did, the more I realized how often it's sort of forgotten. Like even mainland Australia forgets to put it on the map sometimes because it's just hang, yeah, yeah. hanging out there by itself. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how the idea came about. And then, you know, the, the concept really evolved from, you know, a 24-hour or less crossing to actually let's just forget the time component and do a big adventure and see as much cool stuff as we can and, like, really detach from this... Uh, obsessive relationship that I kind of have to have with time in regards to the bike, you know, time just like governs mm -hmm. everything I do on the bike typically. Um, and so getting away from that was a really special experience and, uh, yeah, just reinforced that I want to do these for a while <laughs> moving yeah. forward for sure. How do you drop the like racer boy kind of attitude when you're doing this across, you know, that long of a time period? Like I think, and I think, for the record, you still finished under 24 hours. Like it's not like that still ended up happening, but you talk about it a lot in the film where you're trying to separate yourself from that big time crunch. Mm. What, how do you do that mentally? Because I think at a certain point, you're just programmed to go as fast as you possibly can through stuff. For sure. I mean, it's definitely a, a mental wrestling match, but I feel like it's one of those for me, it's almost like a therapy session for anyone that's gone, <laughs> gone to a therapy session and they can relate to how, you know, it's not always pleasant, but it's work. Like you're, you're doing the work and, and progress happens there. And so, uh, finding balance is like a very active, um, process for me. Uh, and I was still like pretty fixated on doing it in a day or less during, during the ride, even though on paper it was, next to impossible like the math just didn't mm -hmm. really add up and on for a while i was on a 24-hour pace um mm -hmm. and then the route just got absolutely absurd yeah, yeah. I, it actually ended up taking me 32 hours um mm -hmm. but yeah i mean it's tough like i it's because it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning like at 14 or 15 years old when i started going out and doing intervals by myself after school in central texas I was looking at a bike computer, like how many watts am I doing? How many seconds left do I have on this interval? Uh, all the different metrics about your fitness increasing. And if you do that from age 14 and you keep doing it for the next 16 years, like it becomes such a part of your identity. And it wasn't until the last couple of years that I really started to recognize how much balance I was lacking in regards to my mm. relationship with the bike. Um, and it was the exposure to other riders and other ways of riding, whether it was, you know, my fiance, Nicole, or like the, the trip with Burkhardt and Lale or whatever that I was kind of like, Whoa, like the, to be a racer is to know the bike in like a 3% of the potential pie graph. Like mm. it's such a tiny sliver of what the bike can present. Um, and to be 30 now and to have only really experienced it that way feels like a huge missed opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, these, these, I don't even know what you want to call them, like mini expeditions um, mm -hmm. are at a basic level just fucking awesome and super fun and really challenging and also just a, a 
an attempt at finding more balance. <laughs> yeah. What, at what point do you get sick of this? Like, and I think for long rides, people kind of go through waves where they're like, this is awesome. This sucks ass. Mm. This is awesome. I'm done. And then you have like this melancholy feeling when you're like completely finished. And so I wonder for you where the like this sucks ass part comes <laughs> in, because sometimes people tell like I had Uba Bartholomew on a few weeks ago and yeah. he was like Tour Divide. There was like basically no point when I was like hating this. He was like there were struggles, but like at no point was I like this sucks. Yeah. So there's some people that can think like that. And then there's a lot of people that like go through the natural emotion of things. Yeah. Um, then obviously there's people who have no interest in ever doing this at all. But um, <laughs> where at what point do you start to shift mindsets during these things? Well, I think one thing that's important to note, and I would bet. Um, yeah, I would bet a lot of folks that have done this sort of thing can relate like it's it's such a you feel like you're you it sounds obvious but you're going on an adventure so it's this mission yeah it's a mission like you have usually they're point to point and so you have this challenge in front of you and it's completely different than the challenge of a bike race where it's like are you going to be second today or ninth like mm -hmm. you're you're seeking like this number next to your name on a results sheet and you have to make all of these tiny little decisions and try to minimize mistakes in order to maximize how far up the results sheet you finish. Um, mm -hmm. And like the, the difference between second and ninth, especially these days in, in the races I do is like a uh, very small margin. And so with something like Tasmania though, it's like, can you finish it? Can you like, who cares if it takes 27 hours or 50, like, can you start yeah. and can you finish? And when the challenge is much more uh, like pass fail, uh, mm -hmm. I don't think of it as pass fail, but it's when, when it's like you're trying to complete a thing, there's just so much more commitment in mm -hmm. my mind. And also just like focus and the zone state is just like immediate and automatic and just goes on forever. Um, and also it's just so exciting like the world is just unfolding in front of you mile by mile. Most of the time I haven't seen most of one of these routes. Um, and it's just easy to be committed. And I was so damn happy. Like the first 25 hours, just gr <laughs> grinning from ear to ear, like, you know, as the film crew would, would cruise by now. And then I was probably pretty annoying, just like giddy, you know? Um, yeah. And they were already just getting super haggard. Where that shifts, though, is when ultimately it gets so hard that, like, the difficulty just kind of overpowers that giddiness. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely reached that phase, I don't know, maybe hour, like, 28. Because um, mm -hmm. the route that we put together was just, like, unreal hard. And at a certain point, you're just like, I know I'm going to finish this. I hope I don't hurt myself because I'm so committed to finishing. Like, I hope I don't do some sort of damage um, mm -hmm. just from the sheer effort. But I'm going to finish. So it's not really a question of that. Um, but man, this is miserable right now. <laughs> and But you go yeah. through these. And I don't know if it's sleep deprivation or just like crazy brain chemistry that's happening. But for me, in those last handful of hours, like the the peaks and valleys are just so <clears throat> significant like mm -hmm. all 
you know, get really frustrated and angry and like pissed off at how hard it is and feel legitimate despair and then just be so grateful and happy to have the opportunity that I'm crying, you know, legitimately just like, I cannot believe where I am right now. Cannot believe we're in Tasmania. I can't believe I get to do this. Holy shit. That wombat just ran in front of me and that animal (laughs) looks ridiculous. Uh, That's cool. And then like the, the ocean just opens up in front of you finally after so many hours of, of really, really hard work. Um, mm. and they're just these crazy peak life experiences and I think it's healthy. You know, sometimes I wonder if like we're, <laughs> we're meant to like live out these incredibly extreme experiences and really tight, you know, compressed rides. But, um, I don't know for now. I, I, I can't stop, but I can't quit dreaming about the next one and the next one and the next one. <laughs> yeah. What do you feel like when you get home from these trips? Like, what is the, like, that's always a thing that I wonder because yeah, you have this thing that's super emotional, it's super taxing. And then you get home and I imagine there's just like a slew of different emotions going on. Mm, That's a really good question. Uh, I mean, that gets to almost a broader topic, which we're, I think we were talking about before we started recording, which is just like the pace of life that I live. And um, that I think will take some work. Like one thing I am afraid of is when, I choose to or or have to stop living this lifestyle of just like nonstop adventure, whether it's the adventure of a, of a race or, or something like Tasmania, because with our current setup, like I almost don't have time. I barely have time to process these different things sometimes. And then also I don't really give myself time to be bored. And so we were talking earlier about how the travel is just kind of constant Um, I just have three or four days at home here, which sounds ridiculous and it is exhausting. But I also know that if I'm home too long, like if I'm home for a month straight and I'm just training, doing emails, meetings, whatever it is, like I, I start to go stir crazy pretty quickly, but Mm -hmm. like, that's a pretty normal pace of life and probably what is sustainable, like at a human level. And so I do think about and kind of sometimes worry a little bit about what it's going to be to retire. Um, yeah. And, and like slow down to a more human pace of just doing stuff and, and really just like stimulus. Um, mm. Cause I'm, I'm so used to just having the opportunity to be excited about stuff like a couple times a month. Um, yeah. So, I mean, to answer that question more specifically, like come it, coming home can be, at first, it's, it's a huge relief just to be home, feels good, get a little bit of a routine, hang out with the dog, see some friends, all that sort of thing. But pretty quickly, I'm already looking to the next thing. And I don't know that that's necessarily super healthy long term. So mm-hmm. it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that, you know, progresses over the next however many years. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you just get home and you just dump your shit everywhere and you're like, okay, I'm home. And like that release, like that, I think a lot of people probably know that feeling, that release of like getting home from long travel. It's like you need a vacation from a vacation is what people always keep saying. And then when you're doing something like this and it's exciting and it's super fulfilling and then you're just like all of a sudden looking to the next thing. It's it's just, it's got to be a lot. Dude, it's so funny you say that because we got home a few days ago from a trip. And yeah, we did the suitcase explosion and uh, we're unpacking the suitcase. And then Nicole like picks up this big roller bag and puts it to the side when it's empty. And there's another suitcase 
fully still packed <laughs> under it. And I'm like, where the fuck is that suitcase? Like, we didn't just travel with that. Like, what trip is that from? <laughs> and it took us like five minutes to figure out when we'd travel with that suitcase and like what was inside it. And it was like from our previous trip, like 10 days earlier. And we couldn't even remember like what that trip yeah. was, where we'd been, what we packed or why that suitcase hadn't been unpacked yet. And yeah, I mean, it was pretty striking. And we sort of looked at each other like, is this okay? <laughs> like, what are we, yeah. what are we doing? Yeah. I don't know how you keep, like, I don't know how you guys keep your home life in order it's it's a super difficult you're constantly in a state of packing and unpacking yeah i mean it can definitely be stressful and and messy i mean literally and figuratively messy um one thing that's been really key for us is just getting a bit of help so like having some someone come clean up the house and just have it really nice for when we get home has been mm -hmm. massive just like coming home yeah. to a sparkling clean house as as simple as that sounds, um, goes so far just yeah. from a mental health standpoint. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely not, not always, uh, not always pretty. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, last thing I'll ask you best part about the Tasmania trip thing that you kind of left with and you were like, this is, this is what I'm going to hold on to from this trip. Um, Feeling like I'm close to the place and some of the people there now, like the the, pl mm. the place itself and the place itself feels like a friend. And then that we also have legitimate friends there now. Um, that's one thing that I've really come to realize is something I want to uh, emphasize about these trips. And, and one of the most special parts is the collaborative aspect of it. Um, because one thing that I think is a little bit different about these that's really got me hooked is that you can go on to, you know, bikepacking.com or wherever else and pull up some crazy route and go do it in some faraway land and be in the mm -hmm. place and see cool stuff and, and meet people here and there. But you kind of, you go and you visit and you leave. Um, potentially, like there, of course you can, you can be more immersive than that, but like the, the risk is that you just go there, see the place and leave. Um, and that's, that's not the experience that I'm looking for. I realized. And so I think from now on, we're really going to almost make a rule that we come up with an original route. Um, because it requires so much collaboration with people that live there and are really familiar with mm -hmm. the place. And so automatically you, you're, you're, almost like immersed in the place before you get there just by virtue of the, the research you're doing, the people you talk to. Um, and then, you know, if you're trying to capture content about it, you have to have a plan. Like I think one thing that's often overlooked is how hard it is to photograph or film someone on a bike that's moving fast through crazy mm -hmm. terrain for a long period of time. Just the logistics of that is almost impossible. And so putting together teams and like plans and finding someone that knows every little tiny back road and secret shortcut, like you just get so intimately familiar with the place and, and people that live there. Um, that's probably along with seeing amazing places and doing amazing bike rides. That's the part that I'm most hooked on. 
And so moving forward, like that's what I really want to emphasize is, is cultivating relationships in the place that we're visiting um, and really like uh, almost making it a home for, for a month or whatever it is uh, so that when you leave, it feels like mm. you just really learned the place. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think the collaborative part is the thing that, that I relate to. Cause like, yeah, you go all these places and you're in and out and it, sometimes it feels like you just went and you left. But I think when you meet people, you're working with people there, it's like those experience you have, those experiences that you have as a group, a lot of times shape the way that you feel about the trip afterwards. And that, that's one of the things that I, that I always enjoy more than anything else, I think. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's funny because it's really at odds with some of the core ethos of ultra or bike pack racing where it's, you know, totally up to you, a hundred percent self-reliance. Like you're not, uh, you're not supposed to talk to anyone else, you know, let alone, yeah, yeah. you know, let alone like, make plans with them to, to rendezvous at a certain point so they can capture a photo or whatever. But man, I more and more, I'm just kind of feeling like that experience has its place, but the love that I felt for like Gareth Sutcliffe and Peter Colburn, for example, who were two of the two of the local guys that helped us after they stayed up for 32 hours and like ran behind me with a gimbal for 20 minutes and like fell on their face and, you know, just, uh, worked so hard uh, and we're so committed to, to this project, like the, the relationship that I felt feel like I have with them now, it's like, dude, I would mm -hmm. way rather have that than be able to like wave my self-reliance flag and be like, yeah, I didn't even look at anyone while I was out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sounds like it sucks. Like that doesn't seem that, I mean, it, there's a place for it, but that kind of seems like it's not all that much fun. Yeah. It seems like it's work. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, Payson, this has been awesome. I really appreciate the time. Um, where can people find the film and then where can people find you, your podcast, like anywhere where people can connect with you? This is, this is your plug. <laughs> uh, the film's on Red Bull TV. Uh, I also threw it on my YouTube. It's just called crossing Tasmania. Um, and yes, yeah, the socials are just my name. So Payson McElvin, um, the podcast awesome. is the adventure stash, which is a mouthful. Probably going to do a rebrand soon, but uh, it's on. <laughs> <laughs> it's on. Uh, it made sense five years ago. Um, it's on uh, Spotify, iTunes, etc. All that stuff. Sick. Awesome. Thanks, dude. I really appreciate the time. Yeah. Thank you. Keep up the good work.